Good morning, Calvary. And guests, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Paul Thompson. I work here part-time. <laughs> Occasionally, I get the opportunity to preach and speak, and so I'm grateful for that opportunity today. But in all seriousness, I'm thankful for just a good team of, of ministers and staff and people who can bring you the Word and, and, and your willingness to receive it week after week. You know, our aim has been for quite a while now to keep the Word the focus, not the bringer of the Word, not the one who delivers it, but the content of it, and, and I appreciate your desire for it, your hunger for it, and I hope you come hungry for it today. Our text today is brief. Brief texts don't always equate to short sermons, however, and there's a lot of meat on this bone, which we may or may not uh, fully uh, enjoy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 is our text today. If you have a Bible, you can open up with me, you can certainly follow along in the worship folder that you have and on these screens, if you can see them from where you are. 2 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the teaching of your word would bring light and life to us. That your Holy Spirit, the giver of this word, the inspirer of it, would illuminate its meaning and worth to everyone who has ears to hear today. Father, give us those ears to hear. And Father, I pray that the great aim of that text would be our great desire. We want to please you. We just want to please you. Father, that wouldn't be some faraway, esoteric concept, some ephemeral feeling, but it would be the genuine driving desire of our hearts every day in all of our decisions, in all of our relationships, all of our pursuits, Father, that we would please you, you who enlisted us. And Father, if there are some listening today who are not part of this great army of the King, our soon and coming King, our conquering King. And Father, I pray that today they would join up with enthusiasm. They would put behind everything else so less than being what you made them to be, living for the purpose you give them to live, join being part of you, your family, your kingdom, your army. So Father, inspire us today, encourage us today, challenge us today, teach us today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The context of this metaphor, like a good soldier, fits into the beginning of this chapter, which is a continuation of this broad encouragement that Paul has been giving to Timothy for quite a while now. As Paul works to mentor and develop Timothy and really pass the reins of, of leadership over to him. This is the last letters you know and have heard that Paul will ever write. He's not long now from death itself and Timothy, this young man, is emerging to take leadership in one of those churches in one of the most critical cities where the gospel has been planted and the church has been birthed, and that's in Ephesus. And in this context, it's the challenge to every Christian, not just Timothy the pastor. And I I want you to hear this. Maybe as you're going through your notes, if you're a note taker today, if you follow along with the outline that I've given, maybe just one check mark at a time of understanding, yes, I understand that, I see that. This isn't just for Timothy, this wasn't just for then, this is for us, this is for now. 
This is for every believer, every Christian's call to disciple-making. Remember he said at the beginning of chapter 2, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's always been the game plan. That's always been the strategy of God. That what you have received, what you have heard, what you've become faithful to yourself, that you would pass on to other people who also will be faithful. And not just faithful to believe it, but faithful to pass it on too, that this would be the continuation of the gospel that we call disciple-making. He tells Timothy, he says, be strong. Now maybe make a mark around that word, an asterisk, or circle it, or start, because we're going to come back to that in a moment. He tells Timothy, be strong in the grace of Christ. There was never an appeal to Timothy to be strong, Timothy, because you're strong. Timothy, I know how strong you are. I know how gifted you are. I know how talented you are. I know how brave you are and bold you are. I know how physically and mentally and emotionally skilled you are. It was never the appeal. In fact, we see some of the opposites hinted at in Timothy's life. Timothy might have been prone to a bit of physical weakness and infirmity. Paul was constantly challenging Timothy to be bold and brave, so maybe that wasn't his natural personality. Maybe he was introverted. Maybe he was anxious or nervous about his age, and that's why Paul told Timothy, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, Timothy, but be an example of the believers, even now. Maybe he wasn't exactly the prototype of strong leadership. And so Paul tells Timothy, be strong, but be strong in the grace that God gives you. Now, again, hang on to that thought, because I'm going to return to it in just a moment. Because the way that God gives us strength, the way His grace affords us strength, is not always how we perceive it. And it's not always how we desire it. So what's to follow is three metaphors. Metaphor of a, of a soldier, metaphor of, a, of an athlete, and the metaphor of a, of a farmer. And in each of these metaphors, there are indicators of how God strengthens us. He strengthens the soldier through adversity. He strengthens the, the athlete through discipline and training. He strengthens the farmer through hard work and perseverance. And in all of these things, the grace of God is at work shaping and making them into what he wants them to be. He says, be strong in the grace of Christ, not in the abilities of yourself, as you do these two great aims. And these two can't be separated from each other. One naturally has to follow the other. You preserve the truth of the gospel, the weight and worth of the gospel, this treasure that I've given you. Why, why would Paul tell Timothy to guard this treasure, this hope that is the gospel? Because it's always going to be challenged. Always going to be challenged as to the true gospel. What does it really mean to know God? Who is Jesus really? What must a person genuinely do to be in right relationship with God? This has been challenged since the very first gospel message has ever been given in the New Testament. Be faithful and true and hold it like a treasure because this alone saves anyone. But don't just guard it. Don't just pack it up and insulate it. Don't just store it away somewhere, but pass it on. We guard it by passing it on. We understand it by speaking it. That's why Paul wrote, I pray that you will have a, a good understanding of Christ as you share Him. Paul understood this, that the aim of life for every believer, every Christian, is to glorify God. And how do we do that best? By knowing Him well ourselves and by making Him known to others. You want a big picture statement? There it is. Paul was embedding in Timothy this bedrock 
foundational principle of the Christian life. Make God known. Know him and make him known. That's what it means to glorify him. In my life, am I knowing him better and better and better? And am I displaying him through what I say and what I do, how I live, what I choose? Am I making him known to others? So to do that, we're going to zero in on this particular metaphor this morning, the metaphor of a good soldier. Let me just point out what's obvious here just for a moment. Paul says, be a good soldier. Seems to be an implication that not every soldier in the army is a good one. Like any other profession, surely there are some lazy ones, some ones that would rather not be there, some that don't pull their load, some ones that don't obey what's commanded to them, they don't follow their orders. He says, I want you to be exemplary. I want you to be a good soldier in the army of God. Now, I'm not a soldier. And maybe this message would have more impact for you today if someone who was a soldier gave it to you or someone who was in uniform was speaking it to you. Now, I do take some comfort and solace in this. Paul wasn't a soldier either, and he wrote these words by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But he had a lot of interaction with soldiers in his embattled life. He saw them often and up close, and he saw what the life of a soldier was like. I'm just curious, not that it really matters for the message today, but how many of you in this room are, are or have been soldiers? Would you, would you stand? Just stand. We, we, we want to honor you for just a moment because we want to honor and respect you in your work, in your commitment, your service. Now, in, in deference to some of you who might be holding up on technicality, I recognize that, and I appreciate folks like Ian standing, I realize there are Marines and there are soldiers, and there are also sailors. So if you were a sailor, I hope you stood also. Did we leave, did we leave any sailors sitting behind? Dave, did you stand? When I said soldier, I meant that generically. You understand, of course. Now, I'm not a soldier. If you had asked my mom when I was a kid what I was going to be when I grew up, she would have said one of two things for sure, I have no doubt. He's either going to be a soldier or he's going to be a race car driver. I couldn't decide between the two. But I can tell you one of my favorite uh, pastimes, activities as a kid, whenever I'd get a few bucks in my hand, was to go to the Army-Navy supply store. Um, all the good stuff is gone now. The only place you can get good Army-Navy supplies now is in Afghanistan. So, um, <laughs> sorry, that was a bit political, wasn't it? <laughs> but I used to love to collect those things and just, you know, just pretend the closest I ever got to military service was in the Civil Air Patrol. How many of you are even familiar with what the Civil Air Patrol is? Great. It's an awesome organization. I feel great for my service that I rendered for those two years as an eighth and ninth grader in the Civil Air Patrol. <laughs> Listen, there, there's surely a lot that could be squeezed out of this metaphor of being a soldier, but I want to be faithful to, I believe, what the intent of the text is and what it teaches us. At the very least, Paul is telling Timothy, and by virtue of the inspiration of the Spirit, giving this to us as scripture, he's telling us, God's spirit is telling us that in the Christian life, there's a certain mentality and there's a certain discipline that needs to mark us, a, a mentality that we need to adopt and a discipline we need to embrace as Christians in order to be faithful to the task that's in front of us. And so whatever connotations you have in your mind, when I say be a good soldier, understand he's talking about this is not passive we're not customers here. We're not just recipients of a product. We're not just beneficiaries of a service. We're not just those who enjoy blessings and, and benefits. We've been called to sign up for something, to be enlisted into something 
that requires a certain mindset that's different than a civilian mindset, a certain discipline that's required if we're going to be fruitful and successful in this. There's an old sermon, I think, that summarizes this sort of mentality and discipline fairly well in its introduction. It's a sermon simply called, A Good Soldier of Jesus Christ. And I quote a couple of paragraphs from Charles Spurgeon in this message that he gave nearly 100 years ago. He says, I'm afraid that with some, the ideal of a Christian is that of a man who can sleep out his existence in blissful eternity, or serenity, I'm sorry. A man who, having believed or professed to believe in Christ, has settled his life work forever. And from now on can say, soul, take your ease. You have now much goods laid up for many years, your own security. Eat, drink, be merry in the gospel. But as for feeding the hungry or clothing the naked, are you your brother's keeper? What is that to you? See to yourself. And if you are right, let fate or providence or sovereignty take care of the rest. He says, Paul does not appear to have pictured true believers as sluggards sound asleep upon the downiest beds. His description of a Christian in the text is that of a soldier. And that means something far different, either from a religious fop whose best delight is music and millinery, or a theological critic who makes a man an offender for a word, or a spiritual glutton who cares nothing but for a lifelong enjoyment of the fat things full of marrow, or an ecclesiastical slumberer who longs only for peace for himself. Paul represents him as a soldier, and I say that's quite another thing. But what is a soldier? A soldier is a practical man, a man who has work to do, and hard, stern work. He may sometimes, when he is at ease, wear the fineries of war, but when he comes to real warfare, he cares little enough for them. The dust and the smoke and the garments rolled in blood, these are for those who go soldiering. And swords all hacked and dented armor and bruised shields, these are the things that mark the good, the practical soldier. Truly to serve God, really to exhibit Christian graces, fully to achieve a life work for Christ, actually to win souls. This is to bear fruit worthy of a Christian. A soldier is a man of deeds, not of words. He has to contend and fight. In wartime, he knows that his life is, has little luxurious ease. In the dead of night, perhaps, the trumpet sounds to boot and saddle, just at the time when he is most weary, and he must hurry to the attack, just when he would best prefer to take his rest. The Christian is a soldier in an enemy's country, always needing to stand on his watchtower, constantly to be contending, though not with flesh and blood, with far worse foes, namely with spiritual wickedness in high places. I want to shape your thinking today to that of a soldier. What does it mean to be in a battle for the Lord's sake and with the Lord? And keep in mind that this command that's given to us in 2 Timothy, this isn't just a command for those whom it naturally fits, those who can easily identify with it, those who would say quickly, yes, that's what I want to be, that's what I signed up for. This isn't just for the naturally brave. This command isn't just for those who are well-skilled or well-trained already. This isn't for those who are the most pugnacious among us. They just love a good fight. This is a command for all believers. Being a good soldier is a metaphor for a normal, healthy, biblical, God-honoring Christianity. It's a metaphor that needs to fit us or that we, that we need to fit. And I want to tell you why. I'm going to give you a few reasons why today, why this needs to be a normal, healthy description of you as a biblical Christian. Number one, if you are a Christian, if you are truly His, 
then per the scriptures, you have been enlisted into the army of the great king. Now, this is not a statement primarily about, primarily about soteriology, the means by which you were enlisted. But it does speak to the initiative of God and the salvation of us all. That God is calling out from this world those who will be his. And not simply to be passers-by. Not simply to be beneficiaries of. Not simply to be those who will observe and see and enjoy the fruits, but those who will engage in the fight. He's enlisted us into his army. And that's what the very first part of this text says. That we aim to please him, the one who enlisted us. Why are you in this army? Why are you in this great army of the great king, this triumphant army that will rule and reign one day beside the great king? Because he enlisted you. Because he saved you. Because he called you out. And when you think about this concept of being enlisted in the great army, it at least ought to invoke several other necessary thoughts. The idea of authority. I'm in the army of God. I'm not autonomous anymore. I'm not independent anymore. I'm not self-determinant anymore. I'm under the authority. And I'm under layers of authority. I'm under a chain of command. And there are those in authority over me, and there's one in authority over us all. And this is what it means to learn that authority that God gives over us, which is a good authority, a life-giving authority. Also, the idea of responsibility. In this army, I have assigned tasks. I have a set of orders to complete. I have a job to do. I have something that's required of me. This is not a vacation. This is a calling. It's a vocation. In this army, there's camaraderie. To be reminded that as a Christian, we don't serve alone. We have brothers and sisters that we fight beside of, we win together with, we finish strong alongside of. That we have responsibility to them and we have responsibility for them. That the Christian life calls us to be part of something bigger than ourselves. You can use different analogies. The Bible does. A house made of living stones. A body made of living parts. A flock made of living organisms. An army made of soldiers. Finally, the idea of fidelity. That as a soldier in the army of the great king, the most important thing that defines me is I do what pleases him that I'm faithful to him, that I honor him, that loyalty to my king is paramount. If there's one great ambition of the Christian soldier is to be faithful to the king, that I don't deny him, that I don't disobey him, that I'm never ashamed of him. This is what he's teaching Timothy. This is what he's teaching us. Second concept is this. I am in a war. Biblically speaking, I'm in a war. I'm not talking just about the cultural war that we're in today. I'm not talking about just the obvious evidence of the war that we're in. I'm talking about the reality in a bigger picture that we have been in a war as Christians since the very dawn of the church. There's a real spiritual battle in place. There are two kingdoms at war. That's why the Bible gives a picture of our salvation as deliverance from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son, into the kingdom of light. And there are manifestations of, evidences of that war in every time and place. When Paul was writing this, some of the cultural evidences of that war were things like paganism, Caesar worship, the multiple false gods that the Romans embraced or the Greeks embraced, the sexuality of the Roman Empire and its deviancy, the opposition to Christians and the brutality. There are always, there always have been evidences of that spiritual conflict showing up in the hearts of men. 
and decisions they make. And we're in a war today, and we see the evidences of it today. Secularism, the idea that we can live apart from God and flourish, the, the idea that we don't need the commands of God to live well among each other, the, the idea that a society divorced from God can ever be a good one. And we're, we're seeing the evidences all around us. I'll talk more about that in just a moment. But we need to recognize this mentality as a soldier. We're in a war. So we should expect there to be some pain and suffering in it. We should expect that to be the norm. I won't go into all the texts that describe this, but you know the Bible is replete with these, particularly in the New Testament, of not being surprised when adversity and difficulty comes. We should not be shocked by this. He was preparing Timothy for this, and Timothy well knew this. He knew that the things he was going to be required to say and, and preach from that pulpit in Ephesus would invoke the ire of the population in that city that despised God. He knew in those first century terms he would be canceled. He knew he would be ridiculed. He knew he would be mocked. And he knew he might be condemned even to death. He knew this was the cost, and he saw it. He saw it in Paul. He lived it out. And here's Paul giving this, this invitation into something that's so counterintuitive, so opposed to conventional thinking. Here's Paul, imprisoned and beaten. And I would just guess, this is just speculation, but that by this time in Paul's life, he appeared to be a much older man than he was. We have writings about Paul, extra-biblical things that describe him as physical limitations, his beaten-down condition. Just imagine the physicality, all that he had endured, all that he had suffered. And now here he is in, in chains, and he's calling Timothy, come and live this life. It's worth it. He's worth it. I'm inviting you to this life. He's worth it. Expect some pain and his suffering. But he's telling Timothy that God, by his grace is going to use this suffering to make you stronger. He's going to use this suffering to make you stronger. When he told Timothy, be strengthened in the grace of Christ Jesus. He wasn't saying to Timothy, hey, just be strong. Timothy, get strong. Timothy, find some inner strength. He wasn't saying to Timothy, Timothy, man up. You got what it takes. God sees all the potential in you. You can do this. He says, be strong in the grace of Christ. And sometimes grace doesn't look or feel like grace. But grace has an ultimate end. And the end is to shape us into the person of Christ, into the image of Christ. And so everything that God does in our life to bring us to that great end, to make us more like Jesus, to prepare us more for eternity, is necessarily good. And so we can say that suffering is a grace of God. If in it, I suffer well. And I learn to be dependent, or learn to be prayerful. Or if I revalue my priorities, if I redirect my purposes and energies, in those sufferings, he's strengthening me. Maybe not physically. Maybe at the end of his life, Paul was a, a shell of his former self, physically. And he spoke of that, that he was dying every day. In Christ, we're dying every day. But he recognized he was being made more alive every day because he was becoming more and more like Christ. James also wrote of suffering. Chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, he said, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
James wasn't masochistic. He wasn't using some sort of empty psychological exercise. Hey, I know this is terrible. I know this is a hard thing you're going through. I know this is painful and you can't see the end of it. But just count it all joy. Pretend it's joy. No, it's the perspective of looking at the goodness of God and the work of Christ in a person's life to say, I can count it all joy because I know what he's doing is this. If I'll be faithful to him, if I'll keep trusting in what he says, if I'll not let go of my confidence in him and in his goodness and his grace, it's going to produce something in me, steadfastness, the power to endure, the power to endure, the power to handle it. And how do I develop this power to endure difficulty? By going through difficulty. How do I develop this ability to press on because I've been tested and tried? How do you and I grow stronger in Christ because our weaknesses have been rooted out with struggle, with trial, with difficulty? Just remember, Christian, maybe this is worth you writing down, reminding yourself of, maybe this speaks exactly to what somebody in this room needs to hear today. God's primary purpose in your life is not to coddle you. It's not to counsel you and say, here's some thoughts, here's some ideas. Here's a good plan. Let me come along beside you as an advisor. It's not to make our lives easy. It's not to give us good advice or to comply to us. He's not a genie that we rub out of a, out of a jar, a glass. Uh, what do you call it? I'm getting old. I'm sorry. Just It happens to all of us. Lamp. That's the word. I try to give you good words like pugnacious. And the words, and I struggle with the words lamp. <laughs> but how many of us see God in those terms? God is just here to make it easy. I, I was doing this little exercise this week, really more just to frustrate myself because I guess I am sort of masochistic in this way. And I'm reading different churches' websites, some of the most popular churches in America. They draw thousands of people. I was reading their descriptions of what the church is all about and what churches are for. And I won't quote them. I'm not trying to stir up controversy here for controversy's sake. But again and again, the language was all about personal comfort, personal benefit, everything about you and making you comfortable and feel at ease and, and having a better and happier and all those kind of lifeless. And I, I'm not saying God doesn't have the ability to comfort us in distress. If we didn't have the comfort of Christ in distress and loss and death, how miserable would we be? And I'm not saying the Scriptures don't guide us or direct us. But well, the purpose of God is not primarily just to come along beside us as a buddy, as a pal. Help make life better while you do all the things you want to do with or without Him. The idea of Scripture does not comply to that. The purpose of God in my life is to deliver me. Deliver me from darkness and death. Deliver me from the dominion of sin in my life. So that sin doesn't rule over me anymore. It's to deliver me from that. The purpose of God in my life is to develop me. Develop me. Developing me is not an easy process because I'm stubborn. Or sometimes lazy. Or sometimes unmotivated. And so I need the work of God to prod, to stir, to shake up, to break apart sometimes so that He can fix and repair. And ultimately not just to deliver and develop, but to deploy me wherever he sees fit, to whatever end he wants to use me. And if we have a view of God that's more like the first and less like the second, we're going to struggle mightily. Not just with the big things of God, but with the little things of life. What is God here for? To deliver you from the kingdom you once lived in. 
and deliver you from the death that that living was bringing. Deliver you from the sins that were destroying. Now to redevelop you, to remake you, to shape you into the person of Christ, to make you strong in Him so He can put you where He wants to put you for His sake, for His glory's sake. So, in that context, you're in the army. We're in a war, and we will be until the king returns and finally conquers. What's the challenge in this text, particularly number three? Know this. Here's what the enemy is going to do. The enemy is going to use diversion and distraction to make us weaker, to make us more vulnerable, and to make us less effective. Now, I want you to hear me out at this point just for a moment. Uh, This is one of the parts where the rubber really, I think, hits the road for me. The challenge in the text is this. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. The idea of getting entangled. He's warning Timothy not against the full frontal assault of the enemy. He's warning Timothy and us about the long-term subtle strategy of the enemy that makes us bad soldiers. That makes us weak, vulnerable, ineffective. I started thinking, how, how is this happening to us? And specifically to men, I think this applies, this idea of weakness and vulnerability and ineffectiveness. And now the enemy has a long-term aim that way. Again, I'm not just the old guy on the porch yelling, get off my lawn, but think of the movies and TVs that you watch that depict men, married men, Christian men, weak, foolish, bumbling, stupid. The culture that we live in, the way we see people dressing, the the roles that we see people playing, male and female, pornography. I read a tweet this week that says the, the rise of transgenderism and homosexuality in our culture is directly attributable to pornography. Someone did a study, the more pornography you watch, the more likely you are to be affirming of homosexuality or transgenderism or being drawn to it yourself. Think of adult men spending their free time, their hours playing video games. Our primary pursuits, our own personal entertainment. Sports, man, we love it. We'll spend so much time on it, we can quote everything about it. Or we love to drink. We know everything about wine or whiskey or beer. or That's just our pursuit. Pleasure, really. It's what we're living for. It's not that we don't work, but we work so we can have pleasure. We work so we can be finished because recreation is the aim. We don't read. We don't think. We don't speak up. We don't speak out. We don't act. At best, at best, we tweet. We've got a whole elected body of officials that are ineffective. They tweet. They do nothing. Nothing changes. And we're becoming softer. We're becoming more passive, less engaged. We're physically weaker, we're mentally weaker, we're spiritually weaker. This is all by the aim of the enemy. He's taking the army of God and he's making it weak and vulnerable and ineffective. So when the big battles come, when the real challenges come, there won't be much of an army to stand up and face it. It dawned on me this week on a personal level 
My second granddaughter was born. Some of you may have seen some of the pictures on, on, the, on Facebook and whatnot. And as I'm holding her, this little baby, two days old, maybe because of the stuff I've been reading of late, just the things swirling in my mind, I just thought about, like any of you might do as a parent or a grandparent, this world that this baby is born into now. Again, I don't doubt the sovereignty of God or the purposes or intentions of God or the goodness of God. And I like to think like was said of Esther, for such a time as this that you've come into this kingdom. At the same time, I'm reading about puberty blockers and gender mutilation surgery, the rise of pornography and the increase of pedophilia, anti-Christian worldview everywhere. I'm reading about couples who were denied adoption or even fostering because they espouse Christian views. I, I see a mockery of faith everywhere I turn. I, I see racism just cultivated now. And I look at what's happening in our culture and those that are perpetrating it are not fools. They're systematic. I see the systematic dismantling of the things that we see that once were good and decent. And the list of grievous sins that have brought about this grotesque brokenness that's all around us is too long for me to list. But I sat there thinking, I'm not going to be passive here. Now, my role as a grandfather doesn't afford me the same influence as the role of a father, but I will not be passive here in watching her grow up. I'm going to fight for her sake, for what's true and right and good and decent, what God has designed, what God has ordained, what God has promised. Listen, we have to be we have to be. We have to have a mentality of soldiers here. We can't sit idly by and think everything's just going to get better without being people of action, men and women alike of action. When I think about this increasing demasculization and of men, Christian men, and, and secularization of Christian women in our culture, it reminded me of something I read by C.S. Lewis in his book, The Abolition of Man. Listen to what Lewis said. He says, we continue to clamor for those very qualities we are rendering impossible. You can hardly open a periodical without coming across the statement that what our civilization needs is more drive or dynamism or self-sacrifice or creativity. In a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and we demand the function. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and then are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings to be fruitful. And that's what we've done. And we're doing it to ourselves. And my challenge to you is this, just as simply by, by the work of God's Spirit in you as you pray and ask Him to show you what He sees in you. And as I pray for Him to show me what He sees in me is to ask of God, God, what am I doing? What what distractions, diversions, not all are necessarily sinful in and of themselves. But how is the enemy making me weaker? How is he making me more vulnerable to his deceptions and to his future attacks? And what is he doing to sideline me, to make me weak and ineffectual? There's no way I could stand here today and make a list of that for all of us. But I believe, I sincerely believe that that's his strategy. And that's what Paul meant to Timothy when he says a soldier doesn't get entangled in civilian affairs. It's a picture that you're not that anymore. You're not a civilian anymore. That's not your world anymore. 
The pursuits of that kingdom are not your pursuits anymore. The cares and concerns are not yours anymore. What that quote-unquote civilian world is doing now, that's not you now. You've been called to something else. You've got to be vigilant. And you've got to be focused on what is your operation order. What have you been called out to do now? What does the, what does the commander have for you to do now? The leader of this army. Again, I'm no soldier, but try and do a little bit of homework. An operations order is defined as a directive issued by a commander to subordinate commanders for the purpose of affecting the coordinated execution of an operation. So what's ours? What is this operation that this commander's called us to? Well, again, I could hit so many scriptures with this. Mark 16, 15. Go into all the world, proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Or is added in the commission found in Matthew. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. John 15, verse 8 through 10, By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commands, you'll abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commands and abide in His love. You know me and love me and follow me, and you reproduce yourself and others. Or as he said to Timothy, What you've heard from me, in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. And you'll do that in the first century, in the second, in the third, in the fourth, and the fifth, all the way until Christ comes. And to do this necessarily means confrontation. It requires confrontation. Because before you, can, before you can extol the goodness of the gospel, the virtues of the good news, what makes this news good? You have to be truthful and honest about the bad news that it replaces. You have to be truthful and honest about the sin that the gospel confronts, about the allegiance that the gospel demands, about the repentance that the gospel requires. And this requires necessary confrontation, both with individuals and with culture. Why? Because the ultimate ambition of a good soldier is simple, but it's profound. His aim is to please the one who enlisted him. His aim is to please the one who enlisted him. And again, that's not just a disconnected life aim from you know, the regular stuff of life. That has bearing all the time. In, in this moment, am I going to live for my own pleasure, what I want for me, in my own softness and selfishness, my own self-indulgence? Because I've trained myself to be that way. I've, I've trained myself to be that way? Or will I say, God, what do you want from me? A person who lives primarily for his own pleasure can't be a good soldier in the army of the king. Or in that moment where I'm really more concerned about what someone's going to say about me or how they're going to perceive me or how I'm going to be welcomed into their circle or excluded from it. If, if I'm going to be canceled on social media, if I'm not going to be invited to the next dinner party, or if I'm not going to get the next promotion, a person who values most the opinions of others will never be a good soldier in the army of the king. Why? Because King Jesus is looking for men and women who will, at whatever cost, in the face of whatever suffering, whatever challenge, opposing any distraction or diversion, will make it their aim in life to please him. 
to make it their aim in life to please him. I remember watching that Civil War movie, Gods and Generals. I remember a particular poignant scene in the midst of battle. Bullets had been flying, men had been falling, gruesome losses of life. In the movie, it's recorded like this. Captain John Imboden speaks to Lieutenant General Thomas Jackson. And he says this. He says, General, how is it that you can keep so cool and appear so utterly insensible to danger in such a storm of shell and bullets as rained about you when your hand was hit? He instantly became grave and reverential in his manner and answered in a low tone of great earnestness. Captain, my religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. God has fixed the time for my death. I do not concern myself about that, but to always be ready, no matter when it may overtake me. And then after pausing, he said, this is the way all men should live. And then all men would be equally brave. My challenge to us is that sort of bravery, and I think that's what Paul was challenging Timothy to. God didn't call us to something easy. He calls us to something great. And in his strength, we can accomplish that, what he has for us. And I've left out, both for time's sake and because we'll get to this, but there is a reward. It's not implicit, it's explicit to those who are faithful to him. This sense of what God was going to provide and do one day is what set the perspective that guided all of Paul's life. And he shared it with Timothy in verse 10 of chapter 2. He said, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul said, I, I'll endure whatever the great king subjects me to. And whatever the cost, whatever the pain, whatever the casualties of any battlefield he places me on, I will endure that for the sake of those that will be coming to Christ. Those who will believe, those who will hear the gospel and respond, that they too might receive this. Salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And over and over and over again, we see this resounding theme. He will be worth it. He will be worth it. Be a good soldier in the army of the king. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, I pray that you would make us ready for whatever might come in the days ahead, months, years, whatever it may be, as you tarry, you're coming. Father, I pray that we would be ready for you and, and longing for your return and, and living in a way that says we're going to trust you and we're going to be faithful to you. We're not going to be ashamed of you. And one day we're going to see you face to face. And all this faith will be, will be validated. 
our confidence in you, our trust in you, our, our willingness to, to do what your word said, to suffer if need be as a good soldier, all that would be vindicated. For we will see the great king face to face and we will know that your victory is ours. Father, I pray that we would be wise with how we handle and how we respond to this text today. Once again, I think of the warning that your word gives us in the book of James. That we would not be like those who look into a mirror and stray away, forget what we look like, moving on as if we did not see what we just saw. But Father, instead as we have looked into the word and your word has looked into our hearts and your Holy Spirit has convicted us. Father, that we respond. Father, personally, I'm most challenged with that idea of the diversions and distractions that would make me less than what you want me to be. That would weaken me. That would make me more vulnerable to whatever the enemy might do. That would make me less effective than I could be. Father, I pray that we would be diligent to that end. And Father, my aim today is not to stir up anxiety, but to be realistic about the times in which we live and the necessary response of those who will be strong in the grace that is given to us by Christ Jesus. So whatever may come, Father, we'll do what pleases you. So make us ready now. If in relative peacetime, Father, you can train us, develop us, so when the conflict escalates, you can deploy us, Father, then so be it. But may we not be caught off guard. May we not be unprepared. May we not be ignorant of the enemy and his schemes. So, Father, prepare us. And Father, most of all, I just thank you that you have enlisted us into the great army of the great king. That success and victory is assured. The story has been written. The promise is made. And you are ever faithful to your word. And Father, I pray that even now, today, in the most unlikely sort of invitation, some would say, I, I'm not looking for something easy. I'm looking for something true. I, I'm not looking for something that would just make life more fun. I'm looking for something to make my life worth something. I'm not looking just to squeeze the most pleasure out of this life. I'm looking ahead to the life that is to come, and I want to be on the side of King Jesus. Father, I pray that some would enlist today in your army, and they'd know what it's like to live as the spiritual champions you're calling us to be. So Lord, call some out today. Renew the calling of some in here today. Lord, stir us up. Shape us up and send us out, I pray in Jesus' name.